Welcome to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. I'm your host, Mandy Walls. Find me at LNXCHK on Twitter. Welcome to the, the show. Uh, today, I am talking with Greg Albrecht. He is the co-founder and CTO at Orion Labs. Greg has an interesting day job, but he also has a whole bunch of other fascinating things that he does. So we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of interesting things today. Greg, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about what you do. Yeah, thanks for having me and thanks for uh, pronouncing my last name correctly. I realize it's it's a genetic disorder that I carry with me, but uh, I do appreciate it when people get it right. <laughs> yeah, happy to be here. And uh, I wear I wear lots of different hats, you know, both during the day and, and other times of my life. So I'm happy to sort of delve into any of those. Yeah, excellent. So tell us a bit about what Orion does and, and why it got started. So I knew some of you folks because... Jesse Robbins, another founder, worked at Chef when I was there. But you guys have a, an interesting mission. Like, what what was the thought process there? How did this all get started? Jesse and I have a shared background in you know large scale web systems, as do you and, and some of the other folks on your team there. But we also have a background in uh, emergency services as first responders. Jesse being a firefighter, a lieutenant, uh, me being a EMT and EMS supervisor. We've also, you know, both been disaster deployed for hurricanes and earthquakes, wildfires, thing, things of that nature. And what we saw was that there was sort of this last mile gap for communications in those environments. As folks who typically are data driven or knowledge workers, as some would call it, those types of users typically work at a desk or have an office. But folks who are deployed out in the field, you know, downrange, responding in routine jobs, or in emergent situations, tend to be cut off from the types of data systems and knowledge systems that are available to those of us who you know, drive a desk. And so what we wanted to do was manifest that data, manifest that knowledge that a user might need out in the field in a way that's got a low overhead, that's natural, right? And so what we looked at was, what is the most natural way people communicate when they, when they work outside of an office? And it's using their voice. Well, how do people typically use their voice? Well, they're either shouting or they're using something like a two-way radio, like a walkie-talkie or handheld radio. So he said, well, I mean, we have the ability to deliver audio and receive audio from edge devices like smartphones today. Why can't we amplify that, right? Why can't we make that smarter? That was what we did. You know, we first built a platform that delivers that audio experience, uh, a push-to-talk-like experience to end users using any device that they have. And then we added intelligence to it, right? Like we made it so that it's not just a dumb pipe, right? It's a smart pipe now, right? If you will, we want to put the data that those users need in their hands at the place of work. And that was sort of the mission of Orion. Mm -hmm. So along with what you do at Orion, you do a lot of other sort of extracurricular things too. You're in San Francisco, right? You work with like the responders there and events. And tell us a bit about some of the other stuff that you do. Sure. I've been in EMS for longer than I can remember. And I've been doing disaster response since before I could you know, legally drive. But it inspired me to actually become you know, certified and, and become an EMT. So uh, I sometimes work as an EMT here in San Francisco 
for a special events provider. It's a nonprofit called Rock Medicine. Uh, I'm also one of their EMS field supervisors. So typically what that means is I show up and someone hands me a clipboard <laughs> and a radio. But what that's let me do is move beyond simply being a caregiver, which I do still really enjoy, right? I, I, I enjoy the, the patient interaction and the hands-on aspect of it. But moving more into the um, operational overview aspect of those types of events, right? So if we can imagine for a large, let's say a festival or a concert, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into not just running the festival, right? You know, the sound, the lights, ticketing, security, all, you know, vendors, all of those things. But also it becomes its own little city, mm -hmm. right? There's a need to manage the emergencies within that mini little city. And more importantly, it's not just that it's a new thing that needs to get managed, right? It's like yet another emergency to manage, but it needs to be done in a way that it doesn't interfere with the response that the people in the community would normally be receiving. So for example, right, if there's a large festival and someone gets injured, we need to be able to handle that there. If we have to call in an ambulance from outside of the festival, that means that ambulance is now not serving the local community, mm -hmm. right? And you as you as a taxpayer, right? Like you expect when you call 911, you get an ambulance there within a certain period, right? Yeah. Well, the ambulance has been pulled off to go help, you know, someone at a festival who, who hurt themselves. That's detracting from your service. So we fill that gap. We like to say we take everything inside the box and manage it there. It's a non-emergent planned event that requires a lot of coordination and a lot of communication. It definitely exemplifies the expression Semper Gumpy, which is <laughs> always flexible. Okay. That's a good one to know. You you mentioned earlier that you've been doing this since you were a kid. How did you how did you get started in in this sort of thing? That's a really good question. <sighs> Hurricane Andrew hit Florida in 92. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And I remember I was I was pretty young when that happened and I had grandparents living in Florida at the time and I I remember calling them and <laughs> and asking, you know, I didn't know anything about hurricanes. I didn't, I was not living in Florida at that time, but I remember hearing, seeing it on the news and I'm like, that's, that's big. That looks like it's going to be dangerous. And I called my grandparents and I, I grilled them. I'm like, what are you guys going to do? Are you going to fill the bathtub with water, this, that, and the other, you know, what, what steps are you going to take? And afterward, we, you know, of course we called them to make sure that they were okay. And I asked my grandfather, what did you do during the hurricane? And he said, I went and worked at a Red Cross shelter at the local high school. In South Florida, they they evacuate folks from the coastal areas inward okay. on the category of the hurricane. Mm -hmm. So they have to open shelters and they need uh, ham radio operators to go provide backup communications or sometimes even primary communications at these shelters that they open. You know, it happens every summer, right? A yeah. hurricane rolls through every summer, right? So it's it's something that's easy to train on. But what blew my mind was like this retired, you know, judge who's a ham radio hobbyist living in South Florida, like well into retirement, took, you know, his life in his hands, in effect, and went and volunteered for the community providing communications during a disaster. That's what opened my eyes to, to this capability and this this way of helping, right? This way of giving back. And that was for how old am I? Quite a long time ago. <laughs> um, okay. But it really set, it set the wheels in motion. I'm like, oh, there's a there's a gap. There's a there's a there's a, a need for this type of capability during disasters. How can we advance that? So that's that's kind of how I got started. Yeah, like, and how 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 do other folks get involved? Like you said, you were EMT, and and that's a lot of training and a, and a, a bit of dedication for folks. But 
for those of us mortals, are there things that, that you see that other folks do on a, on a regular basis to, to help out with that kind of disaster recovery or? Yeah. I, I wrote an article around this. It's called, So You Want to Be a Superhero. And it describes all the different ways that you could take personal planning and preparedness uh, into your own hands, right? Everything from, you know, just getting your CPR, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so something simple, you know, an hour, a couple hours of your time to refresh on this. And if it's something you've only ever done once, the science changes. This is the interesting thing about medicine, right? As compared to some of the technical stuff that you and I would deal with sort of on the, on the infrastructure side, everything we do in medicine is driven by medical science. If you've taken CPR for more than five years or so, you realize like, hey, every time there's something new that I learned, right? It went from like mouth to mouth breathing to now mouth to mouth breathing to compression only to this. And it's because the medical science has informed that. And I think that's an interesting aspect to uh, working in some of these fields. It's not just that we're constantly putting the, the wet stuff on the red stuff. It's that now we actually evaluate that both uh, qualitatively and quantitatively. And we feed that back into the training. So if you haven't taken CPR in a long time, I recommend you you recertify on it mm-hmm. and actually re- doing this every year or every couple of years, because you'll see that the science changes every couple of years. Um, in addition to that, a lot of communities have CERT programs, community emergency response team programs that'll equip you with the skills and the training and the knowledge to respond in a disaster. Mm-hmm. This is all personal preparedness. Yeah. If you want to move beyond that, of course, you can you become an EMR, which is an emergency medical responder, an EMT. Um, there's wilderness EMT courses. You know, I would even take a lifeguard course if I have the time, right? Because, you know, everyone goes to a beach or a pool at some point. There's not always lifeguards around. There's additional training you could you could harness there. And then the other part of it is put it into daily use, right? You know, Band-Aids expire. Alcohol pads expire. Make it part of your everyday kit. Don't make a disaster the time to break out the disaster skills. Mm-hmm. Try to apply those skills in your everyday life. Incident planning, incident response, um, scale of responsibility, communication pace plans, things like that. Uh, I'll give you an example, right? So pace plan is something that I promote for emergency response communications. And it, it describes primary, uh, alternative, contingency and emergency communications methods, right? So for example, primary might be, hey, uh, call me on the phone at 12 o'clock. I'll come pick you up. Your alternative might be, text me if I don't answer on the phone. Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, Your contingency might be, hey, uh, if I don't call and if I don't text you, I'll pick you up at the steps at eight o'clock, right? Cool, that's your contingency. Emergency is uh, ask the front office to call me if I don't show up. Right. Or walk or walk home, you know, yeah. uh, there, there's your pace plan for picking up someone, at, you know, after uh, soccer. Right. Worst case, walk home, you know, if, if that's the neighborhood you live in. But that's something you can apply to every day. And it gets you familiar with that type of thinking. And I think when a, a stressful or emergent situation happens, you've already got that in your back pocket. Right. It's just routine for you at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find yourself applying this stuff to the work that you do? your regular job like we work pager duty would do a lot of work with customers going through their incident response planning helping them you know get some of that muscle memory around just dealing with things right so that they're not completely crazy when an incident happens how do you find yourself applying some of these practices to technical issues or or things that you do uh, for your day job 
Yeah, in EMS, we call it the, the your psychomotor action, right? Mm-hmm. Or your muscle memory, right? Like, what is the first thing your hands do when you need to do this thing, right? And it's something we train on a lot. We use uh, an incident management system at Orion. Everything that happens that's outside of a nominal becomes an incident. Now, it might not necessarily require a full scale up, you know, with uh, an incident commander and, and subject matter ex- experts across the board. But if we don't track it, right, if it wasn't written down, it didn't happen or it mm-hmm. isn't happening. And there's no way to scale that communication unless you're already using that system. Uh, so we use incident management system for almost everything we do at Orion. The benefit of that is not only are folks trained in it and using it every day, but it's not scary. Mm-hmm. Right? The fact that an incident is open, the fact that someone hit the and on light isn't something that you should be frightened of. Right. It's like, oh, what do I need to do? What resources are needed to resolve this? Right. Is there something I can do to contribute to this? It empowers people as opposed to scares them or disenfranchises them. Or mm-hmm. You built quite a team over at Orion. As you bring folks on, have have they practiced this kind of stuff before? Or is it something that, that you kind of teach them when they, they come on board to think about these things in this way? Uh, most folks with a technical background, even without a technical background, right? Most folks who are coming from what I'll say, quote unquote, the industry, yeah, I would say the technology industry, aren't familiar with this type of response capability. So it's something we train folks on. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll sometimes bring in outside coaches to train on this. And then, you know, between sort of the, the corpus of knowledge we have internally, we'll train folks on this, but we don't deviate on it. So th- there's an expression we use. And again, right, it falls back on sort of the EMS training, which is, you know, when you get on the scene of an incident, you don't just jump right into it. Mm-hmm. Right? And you also don't see people running, right? You have to do a scene size up. Someone calls 911, you show up, you got to look around first, right? You don't just jump right into it. You do a scene size up. And part of your scene size up is, do I need any additional resources? Or do I think I might need any additional resources for this incident? If so, let's get them on their way. The best thing to burn is diesel, right? Or the best thing to burn is gasoline, right? And by that, I mean, it's better to get the help on the way and then have to have them turn around than not at all, right? We can always refill the gas tank. Yeah, sure. So we just say the same thing about incident response uh, within Orion. It's better to call 911 early than late. Mm -hmm. It's better to declare an incident earlier than later. It gets the, the wheels in motion for the additional resources you might need. Yeah. Yeah. We, we kind of turn that as a, like never hesitate to escalate, like bringing the folks in that you're, if you're not sure what's going on, you want to get another set of eyeballs on it and, and really get that, that 360 view with, with help there. So, yeah. yeah. I'll add one more anecdote we've, we've yeah. sort of manifested internally, which is now that everyone's more remote, it's not as prevalent, <laughs> but I'm, I'm particularly proud of this one. And it's the two man rule. We implement our own version of the two-man rule. If someone has declared an incident and they are currently the, the only person working on the incident, let's say someone gets paged and they are now responding to the incident, it is the responsibility of the second person to bring pastries. I uh, like that so rule. Yes. There you go. You figure whoever responded first is probably going to be hungry or low, low blood sugar at this point. Yeah. So you're rolling in. If you're the second in, you need to bring donuts. I'm absolutely right? using that. I'm going to put that in our yeah. in our guide for incident response. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, we had a term for it. It was, uh, it was our SOP, Standard Operating Pastry. 
Excellent. Oh, standard operating pastry. That's fantastic. Standard operating pastry. Yes. That's great. Yeah. You had mentioned earlier about like the way CPR has changed and all those kinds of things for the, the sort of broader response. Like, do you see things coming closer together? Like I feel like for technical teams, we're improving and we're actually like putting some kind of guidelines around things that were probably weren't there before. Are, are things still evolving and changing in real world response that we might see come into more technical response over time? Yeah. I think the idea of real time situational awareness is something that, you know, at least in the, the let's say the defense response space mm. has really come to fruition. And it's because bandwidth is no longer an issue in those environments. So it's a lot easier to stream real-time sensor data, Mm -hmm. telemetry from distant sources and see it locally. Um, So sort of the data-driven response, I think, is what has changed on, I don't want to call it the real-world side, but like the outside, right? For first responders, data-driven is very much how it's gone. I think on the technical response side, we've always had that but it's been secondary to problem solving. Oh, okay, sure. Right. Yeah. We ask the question we need to answer a problem at any given time and then move on versus taking the entire common operating picture in and assessing on the fly. Mm -hmm. There was an analogy for this. I was just reading, you know, there's this idea of planning, right? We, we plan for incidents. Yep. And I heard, I heard an interesting take on this, which was, you don't build a plan because you're going to follow the plan. You build the plan as a way of measuring your adherence to the plan after the operation, right? You're going to respond to the operation the way that you've trained to respond to an operation, whether or not that's what's written down in the plan or not. But, you know, it's your job afterwards to go back and evaluate, oh, what, what did we actually have in the plan versus how we executed the operation. I think the maturity around how everyone responds is gonna grow. So the other thing is like, we need to break down the wall between like, well, this is how you respond to a fire, and this is how you respond to an earthquake, and this is how you respond to a data center going out. It's the same response. Mm -hmm. It's the same, right? There's nothing different about it. You have to manage your resources. Uh, You need the entire structure if it gets large enough. Any organization would be fooling themselves to think that it doesn't apply to them, right? If it can apply to the most stressful and life-threatening situations, then it could definitely be distilled for where you're operating. You just have to believe it can. Sure. Take the, the, the time to make it part of your practice. I feel like places that are still sort of reluctant or or maybe even to the point of maybe not ignoring it but like putting it off until tomorrow or delaying like thinking about things because it it feels like too much or is too complicated or whatever else they're they're hung up on that they're still using older practices that are holding them back from really getting to the point of you know, resolving their incidents and dealing with their their issues in a in a better way yeah there's i mean there's a principle of Make the hard things easy and make the easy things go away, right? And I think this is what gets you there. Yeah, definitely. So you've been doing this for a long time. Um, what's uh, what's something that you wish maybe you had known earlier that 
that you learned over the years, maybe you learned it the hard way and wish had been maybe more apparent or something that had been available earlier? This will be my my opus magnum, the book that I write of just all the, the things. That would be excellent. Yeah. You're going to run into people like me who say things like this, and you're going to be really resentful of it at the time. And then upon reflection, you're going to be like, darn it, I should have done it that way. I'm saying this as someone who was that person at some point, right? So things like perfect is the enemy of done, mm-hmm. right? And we ran, you know, you run into this a lot when you're ideating or you're trying to demonstrate something for a potential customer, investor, partner, whatever it is, right? <laughs> it doesn't actually have to work. If you can describe it, if you can articulate it and you can make someone believe that it's technically possible, then it's possible. Right. If you think hard enough about it, you can make it happen. That doesn't mean it has to be done when you show it to someone. Sure. You still have to pay rent. You still have to pay your mortgage. You still have to buy food. Right. You need to get yourself through each of those, I don't know, gateways, if you will. Right. To get to the point where you have you can make it perfect. But until then, you need to finish. You need to ship. And if that requires taking something that's off the shelf, and reskinning it mm-hmm. and throwing it out there. If that's if that solves a problem for you or for a customer, that's good enough. You need to move on. And I realize, you know, that becomes technical debt later on. But there's only so much technical debt you can take on before you again you have to you have to buy, you have to pay for dinner, right? You have to pay mortgage. Um, so that's one. The other is, and you learn this more as sort of out in the field. But you know, it's two is one, one is none right? Uh, you never have enough of a thing. I call it my rule of fives, especially when you're, you're building things, manufacturing hardware, building components, things like that, which is you don't buy one of a thing. You never order one of a thing. You order five of a thing. And the five are, you know, one to use, one to lose, one to lend, one to break, one spare, right? That, that you, totally works. Yeah. 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 You're going to like, it's going to happen, right? So yep. uh, never be afraid to have a backup. There's plenty more lessons from the book, but the the move fast, break things, you know, not in production. Don't move fast and break things in production. However, if you're pre-production, as many companies are early on, you should certainly move as quickly as you can to sort of get those uh, proof points. Yeah. Excellent advice. While we're sitting here, like we won't have video for the folks listening on the podcast, but I'm super curious about all of the things you have on your shelf behind you. So for the folks listening at home, Greg has a very wide variety of things that have antennas on the bookshelf behind him. Is there anything back there that's super weird or interesting or that you're like super proud of or is your sort of favorite piece of interesting kit back there? Wow. Yeah, this is my museum of hardware. So there's a device here I particularly like. And when we pitch Orion, you know, we sometimes pitch it as a push to talk service. Right. Yep. It's it's so much more than that. Right. But uh, it, it naturally makes people think of radios and walkie talkies. And of course, that's partially because that's my background. But in researching protocols, we would use the talk methods we would use. I came upon this company that's now defunct, unfortunately, called TriSquare. And they built a radio and they were the only company that ever built a radio like this. And it's unfortunate. It looks very much like a Nextel phone. If you remember okay. classic Nextel phones, right? It has a screen and a keypad, but it's not a phone. It's a radio. 
And it's built using a technology that they were the only ones to ever actually implement commercially in their own product, which is a 900 megahertz spread spectrum two-way radio, which is, is not a technology that almost any other commercial off-the-shelf radio uses, right? If you, if you ever go to a store and you see someone, you know, at a retail environment, a, a restaurant, and you see someone using a walkie-talkie there, it is 100% most definitely not going to be using the same type of technology that this company developed. And it was a game changer and it just didn't go anywhere. Uh, and the company's now out of business. And I, I don't know if they sold off their patent portfolio, but I was really happy to get a couple of these. I'm like, wow, this is this is kind of neat technology. I'm surprised it didn't take off. So, yep. Uh, I mean, it still works if you turn it on, but I'm pretty proud mm -hmm. of these. So I'll hold on to these. They're not like anything else I have here on the shelf. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the other things on the shelf are a lot of different types of two-way radios for public safety, commercial users, ham radios. There's some defense radios up there. I have a wildland radio up there, which is kind of an interesting, interesting piece of kit. But I keep these as not just reminders of sort of the different ways that organizations communicate, but as, as research topics, right? Like, uh -huh. why do you need a screen like that? Why do you sure. need a keypad? What kind of information are you communicating and who are you communicating it with? And like, in what operating modes are you in when you need to communicate those things? And it, oh, so what can we automate away? Right. This is something I learned early on learning computers was let the computer do the hard work. Yes. Right. If any of these radios are smart enough, can they do the hard work for you? Mm -hmm. And so that's that's the that's the thing I'm always looking for is like how much cognitive offload do these technologies offer to the end user? Yeah, that, that, it's a fascinating collection. Absolutely. And that's definitely an interesting way to think about it. Like you have all of these various products, obviously they're, they're differentiated by, you know, certain things and, and then figuring out the, the why and what they give to their users is definitely an interesting, uh, interesting path to go down and for any products that we end up using, but especially for, for things that they're doing a job for you, but you kind of want them to be out of your way. Yeah, it's here's an interesting way to think about it as well, right? In order to amplify a user's capabilities, right? You would call this a force multiplier. How can the communications channel be a force multiplier for the end user? And one way of thinking about it is to disregard the content of the communications channel, mm -hmm. right? You know, this is sort of going back to, you know, you probably go all the way back to Shannon with this, but I don't actually need to know what someone's saying to make assumptions about what they're doing. So I'll give you an example, right? This is from public safety, but I think it can mm -hmm. apply all of, of, across the board. You know, if you think about firefighters responding to a house fire, right? They roll up, they do a scene size up an assessment, initial assessment. And then they can call additional resources if they need to. But once they're on scene, they're the ones that are giving information to the rest of the, the organization, right? To dispatch or to the commanders. The things they're doing fire to fire don't actually change that much. You show up, you do a scene size up, you do your initial attack, you plan your, you know, all of that is structured. How much of that can I use to make predictions about what you might need next hmm. versus you having to think about asking for those things you need next. You need to focus on the task at hand, which is putting the wet stuff on the red stuff, doing a rescue, doing your overhaul, doing all of those things. Let the computer do the hard work, right? If the system judges that 
you are moving from an initial attack to an extended attack to a rescue that you need to strike a second alarm. Have that happen automatically, right? Get that help on the way sooner than later, right? Get the Rick on the way sooner than later. I can look at your conversational cadence. I could look at your geolocation. I could look at the groups you're communicating in, the users you're communicating with, and use that to make predictions about what's coming next. Right. And again, offload that from you, from you having to think about calling in additional resources. The system's going to take care of it for me because it sees that I'm talking a lot and that we haven't left scene in a little while. It's going to go ahead and strike that second alarm for me. I don't need to worry about it. I can focus on what's in front of me. That's great. Like the, the applications for uh, the sort of machine learning or any kind of like uh, smarter processes that can actually do that and use to, that to build sort of that machine intuitiveness around what folks are doing and then augment the actual activities is, is, is absolutely fascinating for, for different use cases that are more than some of the silliness that it gets used for. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no harm in, you know, if, if you make it non, not in the critical path, right? Mm-hmm. If you make it sort of a not, auxiliary is not the right word, but an amplifier yeah. for what you're doing, then you get it out of the way, right? So like a smart lights are a good example, right? Like, yeah, I could stick a button everywhere in the house that triggers my smart lights, or I can yell at the, the speaker robot to do it. But if there's no other way to turn on the smart lights, very quickly, <laughs> you'll see how, how quickly the smart speaker and those buttons are torn out, right? Because I need a manual way of doing it. Well, moving towards having scenes and automations, mm-hmm. it doesn't remove the need for a manual override, but it, it gets the technology out of the way of the mission. Yeah. Right. And this is something one of my coworkers came up with, uh, Desmond uh, at Orion. Get the technology out of the way of the mission, right? You focus on the mission. Let the technology take care of the other things for you. Yeah. That's very profound, Desmond. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, a great uh, thing to sort of wrap up with. Do you have anything else you'd like to, to share with folks before we uh, before we end today? Don't panic. Don't panic. The perfect advice, yes. Uh, you know, I was working at an event one time, and this is one of those statements that someone said to me at the time that I was very resentful about, but I now use the statement myself, right? So it's come full, you know, I've become my parents, if you will. Yes. I had a I had a like a briefcase with all my planning documents in it and maps and just everything everything under the sun that you could possibly need at an incident, right? And it started raining and I left the brief briefcase on the ground. It was like a you know, it was a pilot like a pilot's case with maps and stuff. I left it on the ground and it got wet and all my stuff got wet and I was super upset. <laughs> and this guy is like, Ah, stuff got wet, huh? I'm like, Yeah, he's like, Well, the only way to stop the rain is to plan for it. And I'm like, ah, yes. he's right. I get you. Yes. Yeah, it's something along those lines, right? But the only the only way to you know the only way to to deal with the rain is to plan for it. I'm like, dang it. But you know, it it cuts both ways. Was, yes, is what I was getting at with. Not only have you planned for it, but like if you've planned for it, then it's not a big deal. Yeah. It's no whatever. It's rain. Yeah, we're wet now. You can't stop it. It's just gonna yeah. it's gonna rain. Can't stop it. It's gonna rain. How do you you know you've got to plan for it. So. Yeah, that's the thing I try to apply across the board. You got to plan for that contingency, even if you have to carry an extra battery. If you don't carry the extra battery, you know you'll need the extra battery. The battery. Yes. Yeah. Bring that extra cable. Yeah. 
Awesome. Thank you, Greg, so much. This has been absolutely fascinating. So I hope everyone out there has enjoyed it as much as I have. Thanks for being on. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Excellent. All right. So we're signing off. Uh, This is Mandy Walls, and I am wishing you an uneventful day. That does it for another installment of Page to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at pageittothelimit.com, and you can reach us on Twitter at pageittothelimit using the number two. Thank you so much for joining us, and remember, uneventful days are beautiful days. <laughs>